0: Chapter 9 A great murmuring crowd filled every flat spot of ground and pavement and parapet. They stood even on the balustrade of St. Mary's Bridge. There were fringes of them against the sky on the edges of roofs a quarter of a mile away. No flat surface was to be seen anywhere except on the broad reach of the river and near the head of the bridge in the circular space ringed by steel caps and pike points where the gallows and ladder rose. Close beside them a column of black smoke rose heavily into the morning air, bellying away into the clear air. A continual steady low murmur of talking went up continually. There had been no hanging within the memory of any that had roused such interest. Derbyshire men had been hung often enough. A criminal usually had a dozen friends at least in the crowd to whom he shouted from the ladder. Seminary priests had been executed often enough now to have destroyed the novelty of it for the mob. Why, 3 had been done to death here little more than two months ago in this very place. They gave no sport, certainly, they died too quietly, and what peculiar interest there was in it lay in the contemplation of the fact that it was for religion that they died. Gentlemen, too, had been hanged here now and then, polished persons, dressed in their best, who took off their outer clothes carefully and, in one or two cases, had handed them to a servant. Gentlemen with whom the sheriff shook hands before the end, who eyed the mob imperturbably or affected even not to be aware of the presence of the vulgar. But this hanging was sublime. First he was a Derbyshire man, a seminary priest and a gentleman. Three points. Yet this was no more than the groundwork of his surpassing interest. For next he had been racked beyond belief. It was for three days before his sentence that Mr. Topcliffe himself had dealt with him. Yes, Mr. Topcliffe was the tall man that had his rooms in the marketplace, and always went abroad with two servants. He was to have Padley, too, it was said, as a reward for all his zeal. Of course young Mr. Audrey, for that was his real name, not Albin, that was a popish alias such as they all used, Mr. Audrey had not been on the rack for the whole of every day, but he had been in the rack house eight or nine hours on the first day, four the second, and six or seven the third. And he had not answered one single question differently from the manner in which he had answered it before ever he had been on the rack at all. There was a dim sense of pride with regard to this in many Derbyshire minds. A Derbyshire man, it appeared, was more than a match for even a Londoner and a sworn servant of her grace. It was said that Mr. Audrey would have to be helped up the ladder, even though he had not been racked for a whole week since his sentence. Next, the trial itself had been full of interest. A papist priest was, of course, fair game. Why, the Spanish armada itself had been full of them, it was said, all come to subdue England. Well, they had had their belly full of salt water and English iron by now. But this papisher had hit back and given sport. He had flatly refused to be caught, though the questions were swift and subtle enough to catch any clerk. Certainly he had not denied that he was a priest, but he had said that that was what the crown must prove. He was not there as a witness, he had said, but as a prisoner. He had even entreated them to respect their own legal dignities. But there had been a number of things against him, and even if none of these had been proved, still the mere sum of them was enough. There could be no smoke without fire, said the proverb quoters. It was alleged that he had been privy to the plot against the Queen, the plot of young Mr. Babington, who had sold his house down there a week or two only before his arrest. He had denied this, but he had allowed that he had spoken with her grace immediately after the plot, and this was a highly suspicious circumstance. If he allowed so much as this, the rest might be safely presumed. Again, it was said that he had had part in attempts to free the Queen of the Scots, even from Fotheringay itself, and had been in the castle court with a number of armed servants at the very time of her execution. Again, if he allowed that he had been present, even though he denied the armed servants, the rest might be presumed. Finally, since he were a priest and had seen her grace at a time when there was no chaplain allowed to her, it was certain that he must have ministered their popish superstitions to her, and this was neither denied nor affirmed. He had said to this that they had yet to prove him a priest at all, The very spectacle of the trial, too, had been remarkable, for first there was the extraordinary appearance of the prisoner, bent double like an old man with the face of a dead one, though he could not be above thirty years old at the very most. And then there was the unusual number of magistrates present in court besides the judges, and my lord Shrewsbury himself, who had presided at the racking. It was one of my lord's men, too, that had helped to identify the prisoner. But the supreme interest lay in even more startling circumstances. In the history of Mistress Manners, who was present through the trial with Mr. Bedell the lawyer, and who had obtained at least two interviews with the prisoner, one before the torture and the other after sentence, it was in Mistress Manners' house at Booth's Edge that the priest had been taken, and it was freely rumored that although Mr. Audrey had once been betrothed to her, yet that she had released and sent him herself to Rheims, and all to end like this. And yet she could bear to come and see him again, and, it was said, would be present somewhere in the crowd even at his death. Finally, the tale of how the priest had been taken by his own father, old Mr. Audrey of Matstead, him that was now lying sick in Mr. Columbell's house, this put the crown on all the rest. A hundred rumors flew this way and that. One said that the old man had known nothing of his son's presence in the country, but had thought him to be still in foreign parts. Another that he knew him to be in England, but not that he was in the county. A third that he knew very well who it was in the house he went to search, and had searched it and taken him on purpose to set his own loyalty beyond question. Opinions differed as to the propriety of such an action. So then the great crowd of heads, men from all the countryside, from farms and far-off cottages and the wild hills, mingling with the townsfolk, this crowd, broken up into levels and patches by rivers and houses and lanes, moved to and fro in the October sunshine, and sent up, with the column of smoke that eddied out from beneath the bubbling tar cauldron by the gallows, a continual murmur of talking, like the sound of slow-moving wheels of great carts. He felt dazed and blind, yet with a kind of lightness, too, as he came out of the jail gate into that packed mass of faces, held back by guards from the open space where the horse and the hurdle waited. A dozen persons or so were within the guards. He knew several of them by sight. Two or three were magistrates, another was an officer, two were ministers with their Bibles. It is hard to say whether he were afraid. Fear was there, indeed. He knew well enough that, in his case at any rate, the execution would be done as the law ordered, that he would be cut down before he had time to die, and that the butchery would be done on him while he would still be conscious of it. Death, too, was fearful, in any case. Yet there were so many other things to occupy him. There was the exhilarating knowledge that he was to die for his faith and nothing else, for they had offered him his life if he would go to church, and they had proved nothing as to any complicity of his in any plot, and how could they, since there was none? There was the pain of his tormented body to occupy him, a pain that had passed from the acute, localized agonies of snapped sinews and wrenched joints into one vast physical misery that soaked his whole body as in a flood, a pain that never ceased, of which he dreamed darkly, as a hungry man dreams of food which he cannot eat to which he awoke again twenty times a night as to a companion nearer to him than the thoughts with which he attempted to distract himself. This pain at least would have an end presently. Again there was an intermittent curiosity as to how and what would befall his flying soul when the butchery was done. To sup in heaven was a phrase used by one of his predecessors on the threshold of death, for what did that stand? And at other times there had been no curiosity, but an acquiescence in old childish images. Heaven at such times appeared to him as a summer garden, with pavilions and running water and the song of birds, a garden where he would lie at ease at last from his torn body and that feverish mind, which was all that his pain had left to him, where Mary went, gracious and motherly, with her virgins about her, where the crucified Lamb of God would talk with him as a man talks with his friend and allow him to lie at the pierced feet, where the glory of God rested like eternal sunlight on all that was there, on the river of life and the wood of the trees that are for the healing of all hurts." And last of all, there was a confused medley of more human thoughts that concerned persons other than himself. He could not remember all the persons clearly. Their names and their faces came and went. Marjorie, his father, Mr. John Fitzherbert, and Mr. Anthony, who had been allowed to come and see him. Dick Sampson, who had come in with Marjorie the second time and had kissed his hands. One thing at least he remembered clearly as he stood here, and that was how he had bidden Mistress Manners, even now, not to go overseas and become a nun, as she had wished, but rather to continue her work in Derbyshire, if she could. So then he stood, bent double on two sticks, blinking and peering out at the faces, wondering whether it was a roar of anger or welcome or compassion that had broken out at his apparition, and smiling, smiling piteously, not of deliberation, but because the muscles of his mouth so moved and he could not contract them again. He understood presently that he was to lie down on the hurdle with his head on the horse's heels. This was a great business to be undertaken with care. He gave his two sticks to a man and took his arm. Then he kneeled, clinging to the arm as a child to a swimmer's in a rough sea, and sank gently down. But he could not straighten his legs, so they allowed him to lie half sideways and tied him so. It was amazingly uncomfortable, and before he was settled, twice the sweat suddenly poured from his face as he found some new channel of pain in his body. An order or two was issued in a loud, shouting voice. There was a great confusion and scuffling and the crack of a whip. Then with a jerk that tore his whole being, he was flicked from his place. The pain swelled and swelled till there seemed no room for it in all God's world, and he closed his eyes so as to not see the house roofs and the faces and the sky whirl about in that mad jigging dance. After that he knew very little of the journey. For the most part his eyes were tight closed. He sobbed aloud half a dozen times as the hurdle lifted and dropped over rough places in the road. Two or three times he opened his eyes to see what the sound signified, especially a loud bellowing voice almost in his ear that cried texts of scripture at him. We have but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We then being justified by faith, for if by the works of the law we are justified. He opened his eyes wide at that, and there was the face of one of the ministers bobbing against the sky, flushed and breathless yet indomitable, bawling aloud as he trotted along to keep pace with the horse. Then he closed his eyes again. He knew that he too could bandy texts if that were what was required. Perhaps if he were a better man and more mortified, he might be able to do so as the martyrs sometimes had done. But he could not. He would have a word to say presently, perhaps, if it were permitted. But not now. His pain occupied him. He had to deal with that and keep back, if he could, those sobs that were wrenched from him now and again. He had made but a poor beginning in his journey, he thought. He must die more decently than that. The end came unexpectedly. Just when he thought he had gained his self-control again, so as to make no sound at any rate, the hurdle stopped. He clenched his teeth to meet the dreadful wrench with which it would move again, but it did not. Instead there was a man down by him, untying his bonds. He lay quite still when they were undone. He did not know which limb to move first, and he dreaded to move any. Now then, said the voice with a touch of compassion, he thought. He set his teeth, gripped his arm and raised himself, first to his knees, then to his feet, where he stood swaying. An indescribable roar ascended steadily on all sides, but he could see little of the crowd as yet. He was standing in a cleared space, held by guards. A couple of dozen persons stood here, three or four on horseback, and one of these he thought to be my lord Shrewsbury, but he was not sure, since his head was against the glare of the sun. He turned a little, still holding to the man's arm, and not knowing what to do, and saw a ladder behind him. He raised his eyes and saw that its head rest against the crossbeam of a single gallows, that a rope hung from this beam, and that a figure sitting astride of this crossbeam was busy with this rope. The shock of the sight cooled and nerved him. Rather, it drew his attention all from himself." He looked lower again, and behind the gallows was a column of heavy smoke going up, and in the midst of the smoke a cauldron hung on a tripod. Beside the cauldron there was a great stump of wood, with a chopper and a knife lying upon it. He drew one long steady breath, expelled it again, and turned back to my lord Shrewsbury. As he turned he saw him make a sign, and felt himself grasped from behind. He reached at last with his hands the rung of the ladder on which the executioner's foot rested, hearing, as he went painfully up, the roar of voices waxed to an incredible volume. It was impossible for any to speak so that he could hear, but he saw the hands above him in eloquent gesture and understood that he was to turn round. He did so cautiously, grasping the man's foot, and so rested, half sitting on a rung, and holding it as well as he could with his two hands. Then he felt a rope pass round his wrists, drawing them close together. As he turned, the roar of voices died to a murmur. The murmur died to silence, and he understood and remembered. It was now the time to speak— he gathered for the last time all his forces together. With the sudden silence, clearness came back to his mind, and he remembered word for word the little speech he had rehearsed so often during the last week. He had learned it by heart, fearful lest God should give him no words if he trusted to the moment, lest God should not see fit to give him even that interior consolation which was denied to so many of the saints, yet without which he could not speak from the heart. He had been right, he knew now. There was no religious consolation, he felt none of that strange, heart-shaking ecstasy that had transfigured other deaths like his. He had none of the ready wit that Campion had showed. He saw nothing but the clear October sky above him, cut by the roofs, fringed with heads. A skein of birds passed slowly over it as he raised his eyes. And beneath, that irreconable pavement of heads, motionless now as a cornfield in a still evening. One glimpse of the river, the river he remembered even at this instant, that came down from Hethersage and Padley in his old home. But there was no open vision, such as he had half hoped to see, No unimaginable glories looming slowly through the veils in which God hides himself on earth. No radiant face smiling into his own. Only this arena of watching human faces turned up to his, waiting for his last sermon. He thought he saw faces that he knew, though he lost them again as his eyes swept on. Mr. Barton, the old minister of Matstead, Dick, Mr. Bassett. Their faces looked terrified. However, this was not his affair now. As he was about to speak, he felt hands about his neck, and then the touch of a rope passed across his face. For an indescribable instant a terror seized on him. He closed his eyes and set his teeth. The spasm passed, and so soon as the hands were withdrawn again, he began. Good people! At the sound of his voice, high and broken, the silence became absolute. A thin crowing of a cock from far off in the country came like a thread and ceased. Good people! I die here as a Catholic man for my priesthood, which I now confess before all the world. A stir of heads and movements below distracted him, but he went on at once. There have been alleged against me crimes in which I had neither act nor part, against the life of her grace and the peace of her dominions. Pray for her grace, rang out a sharp voice below him. I will do so presently. It is for that that I am said to die, in that I took part in the plots of which I knew nothing till all was done. Yet I was offered my life, if I would but conform and go to church. So you see very well. A storm of confused voices interrupted him. He could distinguish no sentence, so he waited till they ceased again. So you see very well, he cried, for what it is that I die. It is for the Catholic faith. Beat the drums, beat the drums, cried a voice. There began a drumming, but a howl like a beast surged up from the whole crowd. When it died again the drum was silent. He glanced down at my Lord Shrewsbury and saw him whispering with an officer. Then he continued. It is for the Catholic faith, then, that I die. That which was once the faith of all England, and which, I pray, may be one day its faith again. In that have I lived, and in that will I die. And I pray, God, further, that all who hear me today may have grace to take it as I do, as the true Christian religion, and none other, revealed by our Saviour Christ. The crowd was wholly quiet again now. My Lord had finished his whispering and was looking up. But the priest had made his little sermon, and thought that he had best pray aloud before his strength failed him. His knees were already shaking violently under him, and the sweat was pouring again from his face, not so much from the effort of his speech as from the pain which that effort caused him. It seemed that there was not one nerve in his body that was not in pain. I ask all Catholics then that hear me to join with me in prayer. First for Christ's Catholic Church throughout the world, for her peace and furtherance. Next for our England, for the conversion of all her children. AND ABOVE ALL FOR HER GRACE, MY QUEEN AND YOURS, THAT GOD WILL BLESS AND SAVE HER IN THIS WORLD, AND HER SOUL ETERNALLY IN THE NEXT. FOR THESE AND ALL OTHER SUCH MATTERS I WILL BEG ALL CATHOLICS TO JOIN WITH ME, AND TO say THE OUR FATHER, AND WHEN I AM IN MY AGONY TO SAY YET ANOTHER FOR MY SOUL. OUR FATHER. FROM THE WHOLE PACKED SPACE THE PRAYER ROSE UP, IN GREAT AND HEAVY WAVES OF SOUND. THERE WERE CRIES OF MOCKERY THREE OR FOUR TIMES, BUT EACH WAS SUDDENLY CUT OFF. THE WAVES OF SOUND ROLLED ROUND AND CEASED, AND THE SILENCE WAS PROFOUND. The priest opened his eyes, closed them again. Then with a loud voice he began to cry, O Christ, as thine arms were extended! He stopped again, shaken even from that intense point of concentration to which he was forcing himself by the amazing sound that met his ears. He had heard at the close of the Our Father a noise which he could not interpret, but no more had happened. But now the whole world seemed screaming and swaying. He heard the trample of horses beneath him, voices in loud expostulation. He opened his eyes, The clamor died again at the same instant. For a moment his eyes wandered over the heads and up to the sky to see if some vision. Then he looked down. Against the ladder on which he stood, a man's figure was writhing and embracing the rungs, kneeling on the ground. He was strangely dressed, in some sort of a loose gown, in a tight silk nightcap, and his feet were bare. The man's head was dropped, and the priest could not see his face. He looked beyond for some explanation, and there stood, all alone, a girl in a hooded cloak who raised her great eyes to his. As he looked down again, the man's head had fallen back, and the face was staring up at him, so distorted with speechless entreaty, that even he at first did not recognize it. Then he saw it to be his father, and understood enough at least to act as a priest for the last time. He smiled a little, leaned his own head forward as from a cross, and spoke, Absolvote a peccatis tuis, in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritu Sancti. He only awoke once again after the strangling and the darkness had passed. He could see nothing, nor hear, except a heavy murmuring noise, not unpleasant. But there was one last pain, not into which all others had passed, keen and cold like water, and it was about his heart. "'Oh, Christ!' he whispered, and so died."